I'm glad we've been focusing on hope this morning, because above all, uh, Revelation is a book of hope. Uh, Before we start, um, something very important, we need to start with the prayer, Come Holy Spirit, because one thing you notice about the book of Revelation is that John was in the spirit throughout the time that he was writing this book. As they say in Bethel, get drunk, stay drunk, get everyone else drunk. And John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Later on, he says, an angel picks him up and come up here, and he's, he's away in the spirit. Happens again. Uh, later on in the book, an angel carries him away. And again, so there's a bit of a theme here. If you're going to understand this book at all, if you're going to understand the Bible at all, you have to be in the Spirit. So that's, uh, and as Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So if we're going to hear from God, we have to be in the Spirit because that's where we hear the voice of God. So let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. We ask you to speak this morning out of this wonderful book of Revelation. We ask you to open our spiritual ears to hear what you're saying to us so we can pick up this magnificent message of hope and victory. In Jesus' name. So, what is the book of Revelation to you? Is it some kind of nightmarish vision of four horsemen of the apocalypse galloping around the place causing havoc? Is it maybe some code that needs to be unlocked? And one thing I notice about that code actually is that it only has five letters. Apple is only five letters, so that's probably 12 million combinations. Now, if he'd used the word Android, that would be two more letters. That would be 8 billion possible combinations. I wonder why he didn't pick Android. But be reassured, the book of Revelation is not a secret code uh, to be unlocked. We just have to be listening with the ears of our heart uh, to what is going on. So, the introduction to the book says it all. We'll just read through this. I won't spend much time on this because I want to uh, come back to it. John, to the seven churches who are in Asia, grace to you and peace. So, right away we pick up that this is a letter. It's an apostolic letter. Pretty much all the apostolic letters written by Paul or anyone else start with the words, grace to you and peace. So it's, it's a letter to the seven uh, churches uh, from him who, is, who was and is to come and from the spirit, seven spirits. Ah! What are the seven spirits? Well, we'll come back to that. Don't, don't panic. Uh, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over all the kings of the earth. So whatever else we see in the rest of this book about what goes on, we know and we are reassured that Jesus Christ is the ruler 
of all the kings of the earth. So message number one in this book is that Jesus Christ is the ruler. He's in charge. To him who loved us, better still, he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to our God. Kings and priests. That means we count for something in the world of Revelation. We're not... We're not a people who have things done to us. We have, we have a voice, we have a stake, we have authority, we have a job to do. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming. This thing is going to end eventually. Jesus is coming back. And all the kings of the earth will mourn. Jesus is going to come back and seal his final victory. Uh, so when we get to the end of the book, it's always nice to know that we win. Jesus wins and he takes us with him. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. The beginning and the end, this, the whole of history, is all about Jesus. If you read nothing else in the book of Revelation, read those four verses because that is like a table of contents. It's a really good summary of everything that the book is about. Uh, so, who is Revelation for? It's for first century Christians, and it's for 21st century Christians. It's for Christians in every age. Just cast your mind back. Think what it was like to be a Christian living in the 60s or 70s of the first century when John was writing these pages. You're part of a vibrant church. You know the miraculous power of God moving through the church into the world around you. You're living in a time where signs and wonders are a present reality. The church has not learned yet to consign them to the past. You experience the presence and power of God in your own life as well. Life has been good. But all hell seems to have broken loose. The great persecutions initiated by the Emperor Nero and Domitian are in full swing. Christians are being crucified or facing wild animals in the arenas. Many of your friends have disappeared in prison or gone underground. You don't know. You may be next. You live in terror of soldiers kicking your door down and dragging you and your family away to who knows what horrible fate. Worse still, you hear that Paul, the great writer of all those wonderful letters, has been killed. Peter too. They even crucified him upside down. John, the beloved disciple, is getting old. If Jesus is coming back in John's lifetime, as he's supposed to have said, he'd better get on with it. Rumors are beginning to reach you that John has been taken away and incarcerated on Patmos, the notorious prison island. Not many make it back from, from there. God seems to have lost the plot. This book is for you. Now you're a 21st century Christian living in the present day. For all the talk of revival, it's not looking good. Whilst there's great affluence, there's also great poverty. The West is decaying from within, progressively cutting loose from its Christian roots. Russia is making trouble wherever it can. China is growing in might and influence daily. Militant forms of Islam are spreading terror. Corrupt and tyrannical governments are oppressing their people all over the world. 
Worse still, from North Korea to the Middle East and beyond, Christians are suffering horribly for their faith. Even at home, life is uncomfortable for Christians, discriminated against at work, derided in the media. Historic liberties such as freedom of speech and religion are being eroded. The family, once the cornerstone of society, is under attack as never before. You fear for your children. God seems to have lost the plot. This book is for you too. It's a book of hope to make sense of the world around you, to remind you that it's God's world and he is working his plan. So take heart, this book is for you. So what are we going to talk about? Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the structure of the book. I'm going to talk about time periods, uh, what numbers mean in the book of Revelation. The book is full of symbols. uh, And then I'll spend some time talking about the main themes of the book. I'm not actually going to talk us through the book in any kind of chapter-by-chapter way. That's... uh, it's your job to go away and read the book. I, I can't do that for you. Uh, you, you. You actually have to do that for yourselves. But what my aim is this morning is to give you some idea of how to approach this book, to give you some tools, if you like, for interpreting the book. So a little bit about the structure of the book. It contains eight scenes depicting the church age. So the first section is about the church in the world. It's the letters to the churches. That covers the first three chapters. Then we have a section uh, which, uh, which embraces the seven seals, but starts with that magnificent vision of the, of the throne room of God. Uh, the seven seals uh, illustrate the judgments on the earth. Uh, they are followed by the seven trumpets. And then comes a really interesting section right in the middle of the book, which I've called the drama of history. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting. In a lot of Bible writings, the, uh, the... It doesn't build up to a climax. The climax is actually in the middle of the book. Right central in the middle of the book is, is, is some, of the, some of the most important stuff. And, it's, and it introduces several characters like the, uh, the woman and the male child, the dragon, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth. And it's like a story of the whole of the church age just in the space of a couple of chapters. It's a really important section of the book. Then you get on to the, uh, the, the bold judgments. And then there's this extraordinary picture of Babylon, the whore, which is a personification of the whole world system, political and economic. Uh, and she really acts as a contrast to who we see later uh, with the appearance of the Bride of Christ. So you have this huge contrast in, in the last section of the book between the, the whore of Babylon personified by the whole world system, uh, its economics, its politics. Uh, and we see her destruction in those chapters. And then we see the bride of Christ. And that's this wonderful body of, uh, of, of which 
we form part, which is the, the revelation of the Church of God, the faithful of every generation in this, in this marvelous picture of the Bride of Christ. Other than the first and last scenes, all these scenes cover the same um, period of history uh, from different points of view. See, Revelation works in cycles. You can't read it at the beginning and think that you've got a linear timeline that takes you all the way to the end. Lots of people uh, try and interpret it that way. But the trouble is, what you see is that you reach to the end of the world several times throughout the book, and that's really confusing, because how many ends of the world are there going to be? So what you're actually seeing is a series of visions. It's like... Um, it's like a composite picture which is built up different layers. And you just see different aspects of, of what this period of time that the book covers, uh, which I believe is the church age from the time of the resurrection to uh, the return of Christ, what that looks like from different points of view. And each cycle brings out, uh, brings out different truths. Uh, what's extraordinary about the, this book is that there is no new material in this book. Pretty much everything in there is drawn from other parts of the Bible, uh, from prophets uh, such as Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel. Uh, they're, all, they're all quoted. Most of the visions, all of the visions really, are, are based on, on Old Testament uh, prophecies. So the church age starts with the cross and resurrection of Jesus and, it, and the church age ends with the last uh, judgment and the end of the world. We'll talk about, more about time periods in a moment. Now the first scene consists of letters to the seven churches. Now why are there seven churches? It's the same reason that there are seven spirits of God. It, it's... it's Seven is the number of completeness, of perfection. So if you have letters to seven churches, what you're getting is a picture of the church in every age. This, these are the types of church you're going to find in every age, and Jesus has a word for all of them. Now, uh, if, you, if you come from a performance background where love was conditional on doing well, you're going to get these letters wrong, because I got them wrong uh, for years and years, uh, because it always looked to me as though Jesus was ticking the church off. Uh, I, when I went to prep school, every I think it was every Saturday morning, the headmaster would come round with his big mark book, and he'd mark up on the board in each classroom. He would mark up the grades that everyone had got in that week. And everyone was looking at these because they thought this could mean trouble. If you got an A, you were all right. If you got a B plus, you were right. If you were got a B minus, well, that was uh, looking towards trouble. C, you definitely didn't want to get a C. And I don't think anyone ever got a D and lived to tell the tale. Uh, uh, because a visit to the headmaster's uh, study usually went a bit like this. You know, you'd, you'd get a blowing up in which the words, you feckless and futile little boy, would appear probably more than once, and then you'd be invited to bend over the armchair and uh, receive the, the, um, the fruits of your labours on the backside. Uh, 
So if, if that's your background, <laughs> you're going to get this wrong because it looks like Jesus is ticking the church off. But every letter contains encouragement. Every letter says, keep going, you're going to get there because there's blessings at the end. I've got this. That's what he's saying. Uh, so Jesus is saying in these letters, keep going. I love you. I know exactly what's going on with you. Don't despair. And then the last scene covers the final judgment and the appearance of the bride. So that's Revelation. The structure of Revelation in, the ne- in, in a nutshell is a series of scenes covering the same uh, period of time. It has a beginning with the letters to the churches. It has an end with the glorious appearing of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So let's look at time periods because these are really um, important. I'm sorry to say this does get, a little, I get to sound a little bit technical, but don't despair. I've prepared a series of study helps which will be published tomorrow and it'll go into all of this in greater detail. Again, this won't tell you the answers to the mysteries of the book of Revelation, but what it will do is to help, it, help you to study uh, the book uh, for yourselves. So, time periods in the Bible. The Bible characterizes the end times in various different ways because Revelation is a book about the end times. So, they all look as though they're different. There's a period of three and a half days. There's three and a half years. There's 42 months. Now, 42 in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, is really, really significant. And the thing that I find hilarious is that Douglas Adams was right. 42 is the answer to the life, the universe, and everything. Uh, Because... Well, in 42, there are 42 generations from Abraham to Christ. We are the last generation. We are the generation on whom the fullness of the times has come. Israel had 42 stops in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land. It was a time of purification uh, for Israel to get rid of the unbelief. Somebody said um, quite wisely, I thought, that it took, um, it took no time at all to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. Uh, so, where are we up to? 1260 days. There's also this period of times, time, times, and half a time. Three and a half these are all descriptions of the same period of time. They're descriptions of the, the church age, also known as the end times. And so when does the church age start? It starts with the abomination of desolation uh, and it ends with the great day of the Lord. Now I am going to talk a bit about the, um, the abomination of de- desolation because we have to be able to fix this time period to understand when it begins and when it, when it ends. And so we go to the words of Jesus uh, because uh, if you're going to have any interpretation of the book of Revelation, uh, you have to be able to relate it to the words of Jesus. And the words of Jesus that um, talk about the end times 
uh, are in the um, in chapters 24 and 25 <coughs> of Matthew. Um, and he says, when you see the abomination of de- desolation standing in the holy place, uh, there will be great tribulation. So we're beginning to understand that there is this period called the great tribulation. And the big question for the book of Revelation is, well, it's bad now. Is it really going to get that much worse? Have we, if it's all we've got to look forward to, a really horrible period before the end comes? Or are we actually in the great tribulation now? Uh, now I'm not saying my uh, interpretation is necessarily correct but what I am saying is that this is an interpretation which brings hope if you have another interpretation of the book it better bring hope because that's how you know whether you're on the right lines with the book of Revelation do I feel hopeful having read this or do I feel terrified terrified and hopeful is okay but (laughs) but just terrified is not good, you don't want to be there. So we have to get to grips with this thing called the abomination of desolation, which just sounds horrible. But this is what Jesus said. From the time that the daily... No, this is what Daniel said. You see, Jesus takes this from Daniel. From the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Well, that's near enough, 42 months. That's the... That's the time period. We're coming, back to, we're coming back to that time period. Now, so we have to be able to understand what the abomination of de- desolation is. Well, it's quite clear that it has to do with the taking away of the daily sacrifice. And that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's when the daily sacrifice was taken away. The temple was destroyed in the sack of Jerusalem. But the heart of the uh, daily sacrifices went out of, of the temple at the, at, the, uh, at the crucifixion. There's that memorable passage in, in the book of Matthew where, where the, the veil of the temple was torn in two. God was saying, I'm, I'm out of here. That, the era for daily sacrifices is finished. That's, that's when the heart went out of it. And that, so that anchors, for me, the abomination of desolation. So that means that that's when the Great Tribulation started. That's the period we're in now. We're in the 42 months. We're in the, we're in the end times. This is the period when God's work purposes are worked out in history. And then the end will come. So it covers the whole of the church age. And they're also known as the end times. Have you got that? Should we move on? So, what about the millennium? I hear you ask. Do I hear you ask? <laughs> Thank you, I'm getting there. Click. Oh, we're in the Great Tribulation now. I think I already said that. So, what about the millennium? What a great, good thing you asked the question. Thank you, Graham. Okay, now people get very confused about the millennium because if you follow the, 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 the view of Revelation that says this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens, uh, then comes the rapture, then comes a thousand years when, uh, when all is wonderful and then we have the last battle and then Jesus comes again, what have you done? You've pushed a major part of our hope off into the future. 
where it actually means nothing to us. I mean, okay, there's going to be a millennium, great. How does that help me now? Not much. So it's, it's not a great place to be. So let's look at the millennium. It's in chapter 20 of Revelation. So I'm not going to read it, but uh, I'll just sketch out what happens. The millennium starts with Satan bound. He's bound with a great chain and cast into the pit. Then the saints reign with Christ a thousand years. Uh, and that's the, that's the first resurrection. Then there's a short period when th- Satan is released. And then there's an almighty battle. And at the end of the battle, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Then comes the white throne judgment. Uh, and this is referred to as the second death. And where's the hope in this? Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. I, you've been recreated in spirit. You've been born again. Because you will, have, uh, over, over the, you will not suffer the second death, which is what happens uh, to uh, the unbelieving world. So how does this fit in with our, with our timeline? So the millennium starts with Satan bound. What happened at the crucifixion? Satan was beaten. Jesus took the keys of death and Hades. He was, he was disarmed. The power of death was taken away. Uh, he made a show opening over him, triumphing, him, triumphing over him in it. So the saints reign with Christ a thousand years. This is the period I think we're in. This is the, this is the church year. Uh, this is the church age. It's interesting that history records that at the end of the first millennium, people thought, well, that's it then. God's coming back. And there were lots of prayer vigils around, around the end of December in the, year, in the year 999 because they thought Jesus was coming back. But the thing about numbers in Revelation is that they are all symbolic. You can't take a number in Revelation literally. You have to understand what it's talking about. And the thousand is a number that just means a very large number. So the thousand years is a very long period. Well, it's uh, 2,000 years and counting. So then we have uh, Satan released and there's the almighty battle. That's referred to as the great day of the Lord in the, in the book of Revelation and throughout biblical prophecy. God's, en- God's enemies are defeated and then, then there's the, the white throne judgment. But the important thing for us as Christians is that we have nothing to fear. From the, uh, from, the, from the white throne judgment because we're already in Christ. It's the same thing that we need to get hold of when it comes to the mark of the beast. People get really worried about the mark of the beast, 666. Uh, what if I take the mark of the, mark of the beast? You can't because you've already been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Not possible. End of. You're not going to take the mask, not, not going to take the mark of the beast. So, that's a quick look at the millennium. Uh, I think we shouldn't get distracted by thinking that there's some period of time right, right at the end when this is going to happen. It's happening now. And it's a message of hope for us. Because, I'm going to go back to it because this is really powerful. 
We reign with Christ a thousand years. This is what it means to be kings and priests to our God. John already told us in, in the first chapter we're kings and priests. And he's merely repeating what Peter said in his letter. We're kings and priests. We have a say. We have a voice in all of this. We have a job to do. So what's supposed to happen in the millennium, the church age, the period we're living in now, is that we're supposed to be kings and priests. We're supposed to be ruling and reigning with Christ. That's what the millennium is about. It's not some mythical period in the future. It's us now. This is the period where we fulfill the great commission. Adam's commission was to fill the earth and subdue it. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus himself taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the church age is all about. That's what the millennium about, is about. That is what we're here for. That's what the, whole, what the whole church age is about. So uh, let's go on to something easier. Uh, numbers in the Bible. You have to, uh, have to understand that the numbers in the Bible are not literal so two is a really important number. Two is the number of witness by the, wit by the uh, uh, mouth of, the, by the testimony of uh, two witnesses, let a man stand condemned. Uh, you have uh, Moses and Elijah bear witness to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. There are two, uh, and the two witnesses appear in that form symbolizing the church in chapter 11 of, of Revelation. So two is a really important number. Three is the number of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Four is the number of the earth. There are four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Four, uh, four uh, winds, north, uh, north, east, south, and west. Seven is a really important number. This is the, uh, this is the perfect number. It's the, it's the number of the Sabbath. On the seventh day, Jesus rested. Uh, God rested from his labors. Um, where do we go next? Six. Six is, the, six is the number of man. Now, man doesn't make it to seven without Jesus. But you see, that was the whole lie that mankind bought in the garden in, in eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What did, what did the serpent say? He said, uh, eat this, you'll be like God. Job, job done, why do you need God? but it hasn't worked. And if you look at the number of the beast, it's the number of 666. However many times you say six, however many sixes there are, <clears throat> you can't get to seven. And it exposes the lie uh, of the serpent about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On your own, you cannot get there. You need Jesus. And thank God for Jesus. So then we get to 12, the number of God's government. Why is it the number of God's government? Because there are 12 apostles, there were 12 tribes. Uh, so that's, that's God's government in the earth. Uh, 24, that's the number of the 24 elders in, in, chapter, in, chapter, in chapter 4 of Revelation. Uh, it's, uh, it really represents, you can look at it various different ways, and I talk about this more in the study notes, You've got the 12 tribes of Israel, you've got the 12 apostles, 24 puts them together and says this is the 24 elders are about the witness of the church and the faithful people of God throughout all ages, before, before the time of Jesus and after, after the time of Jesus. So 24 
symbolizes God's government throughout the entirety of human history. A thousand is just a really big number. Uh, it's just, it refers to multitudes. And here's the big one, 144,000. Did you ever worry about whether you're going to make it to one of the 144? Have you, uh, have you, got, your, have you got your ticket? Which number are you? In the old days, if, you were, if your membership card for the Communist Party of Great Britain was in two figures, you were somebody. Uh, so, where are you in that? Well, the good news is that if you unpack that number, it actually means God's people in every age. Because where it occurs in the book of Revelation, uh, firstly, John sees the 144,000 numbered by the 12 tribes, like a military census. And then the very next verse, John says, then I saw a great multitude. It just means a great multitude. But the fact that it's prefaced with 144 means that it's 12 by 12, 12 times 12. It's the faithful of God in every generation. So if we're faithful, if we follow Jesus, we're going to be in that number. And it doesn't, doesn't actually matter whether you've got a ticket with a number on it, you're in. So let's look, at some, let's look at some symbols quickly. Here are some symbols we, knew, we use every day. We know what they mean. Number 10, Westminster, Brussels. The exit sign, that's really interesting. Have you ever wa- walked through an exit sign? Can't be done. You've got to walk through the reality that the sign points to. And it's the same with symbols in the, in, in, in the Bible. So here are some of the more important ones. Babel and Babylon symbolize the, uh, the, um, the, the world system. The dragon is the, is the devil or Satan. The beast from the sea is the political and economic powers of the world under the control of the dragon. Uh, and the beast from the earth is uh, false religion uh, as it supports uh, the, the, uh, the, the dragon's work. Mark of the beast. Don't worry about this as I've said before. You can't take the mark of the beast if you're already sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise because you've already got God's seal on you. How's any other mark going to stick? It just, it just won't. The sea, oh, well, we've got the two witnesses. We've talked a little bit about the two witnesses. They represent the church in every age. So if you, when you get to chapter 11 and you see all this stuff about the two witnesses, witnessing in the great city, being killed, being raised to life again, it's talking about the church. It's just a picture of what it is to be in the, in the church of Jesus Christ in a, in a turbulent world. Uh, the sea is generally nations and their peoples. The great white throne is symbolic of the final judgment. The woman and the man-child, we've talked about them a bit. You find them in chapter 12. That is really one... Chapter 12, I, I tell you what, it is the trippiest bit of the book. It really is. You've got to have a look at that. So, symbols. These symbols, if you're going to understand the book, you have to know these symbols and know what they mean. And there's more detail about them in the study notes. 
This is the bit I really want to get to, and this is what Revelation is really all about. And this constitutes, uh, this is what constitutes our hope. What is it about? Uh, what is it about? We've already talked about that. Um, that's what it's about, the cry of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, holy and true? How long until you judge and avenge our, our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The expectation of the early church is God's going to wrap this up soon. Well, he didn't. Has he lost the plot? No. No. And they're told to wait a while longer. But that's, that's the cry of all of us at some time in our lives. How long is this going on for? I, I'm not sure I can take any more of this. And we've all been there at some point in our lives. It's about what to expect as Christians. Jesus told us very clearly what it was going to be like. He said, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Revelation is that in picture form. It says, this is all for you to have peace. It's our hope. Here it's going to, you're going to have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. I've got this. It's about patient endurance and hope. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Sorry folks, there's no shortcut. We all have to climb that ladder of, of uh, tribulation, perseverance, character, and hope. See, one thing about this Christian life I've learned is that there aren't any shortcuts. And if somebody tells you are, you are, then move on. Talk to somebody who's lived a bit and knows, knows what it's like. So what is Revelation about? Our hope is eternal. Therefore do not lose heart. I can't get this to click. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory okay so times can be tough but it, but it ends well our outward man is, per is perishing but we have the life of God within us it's in, um, I think it's the same book it says, it says we have this treasure in earthen vessels remember Mark Doggett talking about that and saying we're clay pots you know we're fragile we break easily but God decided to entrust his treasure into clay pots like you and me. Isn't that amazing? It's about God's lordship over, over history. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm praying this psalm a lot in, in the current situation in our family. He whom sets in the heavens, uh, he, he who sits in the heavens laughs. I'm so glad we've got a, a God who's in charge of how this ends. So God is in charge of history. And this, this bit is really important as well. Where are we sitting? But God made us alive together with Christ and made us to sit together with him in the heavenly places. Too often we find ourselves under the circumstances, well under the circumstances, 
we spend a lot of our lives struggling on the earth to get access to heaven, to get heaven's attention. And that is a very difficult place to be. But what? And people say, well, positionally, of course, we're seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Now, if you hear anyone say to you, positionally, you know it doesn't mean a thing. Because positionally, we are seated in Christ. That means it's a theoretical concept which has no application to our daily lives. How do we be positionally anything? It's got to be a present reality for us. In this, in this, in this coming age, I, I believe the thing which is, I'm hearing this from a number of different sources, is that worship is going to be central to the life of the church in, in the coming days. That's where our victory is going to come from. We have to be tuned in to heaven. And when we tune into heaven, um, Dorna says it like this, if you're getting bad stuff, change channel tune into heaven and worship is going to be key to that that's where our uh, that's where our fight is going to be that's where our victories are going to be won Uh, because and, and why is that so important because we're tuned into heaven that's how we are going to be in a practical sense seated with Christ in heavenly places because when we are seated in Christ in heavenly places we're tuned into what heaven is saying then we're working from heaven towards earth rather than sitting on the earth trying to get heaven's attention. It's a radical shift, but it's, it's the shift which is going to teach us how to live uh, victorious lives. So why is it all taking so long? Am I all right for a few minutes, Graham? Okay. It's all about the wheat and the tares. Why is this parable so important? Because Jesus says... God sows good seed, the enemy sows tares, i.e. weeds. The laborers say, well, hadn't we better pull up the tares? And Jesus says, no. God says, no, leave them till the time of harvest. Uh, We don't want to pull up the good stuff by mistake. When harvest comes, the tares will be burned and the wheat gathered into my barn. As I've been preparing this, this parable has never been far from my thoughts because it's it's a picture of the church age, what's going on? God's sown good seed, the enemy has sown bad seed, and it's coming up weeds. The thing, the thing is that if you don't need, wait till harvest, you don't know which are the wheat and which are the tares. Now, if God had started a harvest in uh, any time up to 23rd of January 1977, I'd have been pulled up with the tares and thrown into the flames. But on the following day, 23rd of January, I gave my life to Jesus and my nature changed. I stopped being a weed and I became... And I suddenly became good seed because I was born again. I became a new creation. So this period is really, really important because this is where, uh, this is where we make disciples of all nations. We all started out as weeds, but we've been turned, we've been turned into wheat. And when the, when the harvest comes, we'll be in the right place. So this period is really important. We can't cut it short. This is what the church age is about. It's about make disciples of all nations. Let everyone come. God's, God's perfect will is that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge 
and come to the knowledge of Christ. So we don't know. We don't know. And how will it end? Well, it, it ends well. Uh, there will be a day of a great day of the Lord. There are lots of many days of the Lord when God brings judgments on un, ungodly kingdoms and empires. Uh, it's happened throughout history. It's happening now. But there will be one final climactic day of the Lord. And then what? Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So that's going to be good. We're on the way. So Revelation is a book of hope. Surely I'm coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I'm done. Thank you for listening.